This is Do Good and Do Well with me, Sarah Fox, the podcast where we explore how you can help make positive change in the world without losing yourself. Hi everyone and welcome to the Do Good and Do Well podcast with me, Sarah Fox, a coach, sometimes mentor, mother of two and owner of Pim the Labrador. In this podcast we explore what it is to be an instigator of change and the challenges that come with that. My mission really is that this podcast is to remind you that you matter too and that it's totally okay to put yourself at the centre. It's your life after all. You're listening to episode 33 and if you listen to the last one you'll know I've introduced a new feature called Sarah's Suggestion where I offer up a tip to doing good and doing well. And A little reminder, this is Sarah's suggestion, not Sarah's shoulds. Take what you need and dump the rest or share it with someone else who might find it useful. So today, my top tip is all about doing a done list at the end of the day. It's really easy, isn't it, to look at the long to-do list and see that you've only ticked off a couple of things or maybe not any of it and feel you haven't really achieved anything that day. And then we get into beating ourselves up about how unproductive, how inefficient, how wasteful of time we have been. Your critic, the shitty committee coming out, especially when you're tired at the end of the day, to tell you just how rubbish you are. Well, one of the things that I found useful, some of my clients have found useful, is to sit down at the end of the day and write down the things that you have achieved. So you can grab a scrappy piece of paper or write it in your diary, in your journal, but you're writing down everything that you have done. Even if it's something like, I had a rest with a cup of tea and I watched a bit of telly because we know that is an important thing to do to rest. And what else? You know, what did you do for yourself that day? What did you do for others that day? What did you get done? And how were you that day? You know, you might not have achieved any of the to-do list, but maybe you were brave. Maybe you put yourself first. Really be thinking about that kind of stuff as well. And don't overlook the normal day-to-day tasks like walking the dog or making the packed lunches. All of those things are really important and you can get to see what you have done and see that you have achieved something. Write the list as long as it needs to be. Hold back the judgment and instead of criticising, give yourself a pat on the back. In today's episode, we have Beth Cox. Beth is an inclusion and equality consultant, author, editor and solo parent. Beth has worked in publishing since 2003. In 2013, she co-founded Inclusive Minds alongside Alexandra Strick. 
She speaks about inclusion at events. She's the author of activity books called Level Headers that help build self-esteem and confidence for children. She has designed and she delivers two programs to help people working in publishing to understand the basic principles of inclusion so that they can avoid the common pitfalls. Beth is also a solo mum to a donor-conceived child and is passionate about transforming the bookshelves of the next generation so that children can see that it's safe to be who they are and that they don't need to change in order to fit in. Here's our chat. Hello Beth and welcome to the Do Good and Do Well podcast. How are you today? I'm good, thank you for having me here. Oh, you're very welcome. It's weird because we have met a few times, but not in real life, not IRL, (laughs) only online. And I've been wanting to get you onto the podcast for ages because I absolutely love what you do. And I think it is so, so, so important. So my first question is, what do you want people to know about you? Oh, well, I guess there's two sides to me. So I am a solo mum to a donor-conceived child, which means I had him on my own by a sperm donor, and he turned six last week. And professionally, I'm an inclusion consultant, um, which doesn't really say a lot, but means that I, I work with children's book publishers to help them understand the basic principles of inclusion. So just really very basic stuff, but things that we can easily get wrong um, to, to help them make mm. their children's books more inclusive. So not, you know, specific books, but just so they can embed inclusion across everything they publish. So we get to see a more inclusive children's book world, bookshelves and and everything. That's kind of my main work focus. So those are my mm. two main things. And obviously running my own business and being a solo parent is quite a juggle. There's a, there's a lot to do and there's a lot of pressure on me to get it right because it's just me mm. yeah thank you for sharing that I'll, I'll come back to being a, a solo mum and, and that story if that's okay but I, yep. I just want to delve into the inclusion a little bit like what how did you end up doing what you're doing and what sort of driven you to get to this point um well it's it's quite a long story so I'll, I'll try and we've got time <laughs> <laughs> um I'll start in the middle and then I'll probably go back and forward so I I always wanted to be a teacher when I was at school. So one of the things you do to get into teacher training college is you do volunteer work in schools. And I, when you're at secondary school, and I worked in a school that um, was very inclusive. So originally on the site, it was what was known then as a special school. So it was a school for disabled children. And then they built a mainstream school on the same site. It's an incredible school, Prince of Wales School in Dorchester. And they included a lot of the children who were originally at the you know, the special school into the mainstream classroom. And now all the children are included, but at the time it was part time. And I really saw the impact of inclusion. I saw how the children from the mainstream school didn't see the disabled children as disabled children. They just saw them as their peers. And so it really fired up an interest in me in terms of inclusion. And it was something that I really wanted to learn more about as I did my teacher training. But Obviously, there's so much to learn during teacher training. There wasn't actually a lot of focus on that. But I did manage to do my um, British Sign Language stage one whilst at university. So I had, you know, some areas of focus with that. In the end? In the end, I only taught for 
two years before deciding it wasn't for me. Various issues. I taught in the UK in Hounslow and I taught in Vietnam in an international school mm -hmm. for a year. But I realised it wasn't for me, but I'd always loved books. So I decided to go into publishing and was lucky enough to get a job with a small independent publisher. And they had always wanted to be very inclusive and had been very forward thinking. They were established in 1972 and they'd always included an ethnically diverse range of characters in books. And they'd included a few wheelchair users in books and they really were keen to include more disabled children but they didn't know how and they were worried about getting it wrong, which is quite a common thing that I mm. see now. And whilst I was there, I came across a small article about a project that had just received lottery funding and was going to be run by Scope called the In the Picture Project, which was designed to encourage publishers to include incidental images of disabled children in picture books. So I immediately got in touch with them and they were like, oh, this is really quick. Actually, we're not up and running yet. But... <laughs> It ended up with them inviting me to be on the steering group as the publisher representative. And the project ran over three years and it was incredible. It transformed everything we did because I would go along to this meeting every three months, take what we were working on, talking about actually the kind of information that as a publisher we needed to know to get this representation right. And there were various people on the group. So there were authors and illustrators. There was someone from the Disabled Parents Network. That's where I met Alex Strick, who was a consultant for Book Trust, and we went on to found an organisation together. It really, it really fired me up, and it kind of it went back to that inclusion message that I'd seen in that school that mm. by including disabled children just incidentally in books, you know, we can show people that actually everyone's just we're just people, we're humans. There's so many similarities as well as those differences which we can celebrate once we've got that connection and we can recognise the similarities. And obviously the focus was just on disabled children for that project. And when it ended after three years, it was a real shame because it felt like there was so much more. It was just getting momentum. And then the funding ended. And I also realised actually it's not just disabled children who are missing from books. It's so many other people who haven't seen themselves in books. So Alex Strick and I, who I met there, we still wanted to do something. And it was when I went freelance in 2011, we realised actually, yeah, we can focus on this now. No one else has picked this up and run with it. So perhaps we can. And we founded mm. an organisation called Inclusive Minds Together, which at that time, so it was officially founded in 2013. And at that time, it was very much about, about the importance of inclusion, about why this needed to happen. Obviously, that was eight years ago and things have changed dramatically since then. And everyone is very much on board that this needs to happen. So the focus has changed into helping them get it right. Mm. And one of, the, one of the main things that Inclusive Minds does now is it's developed this network of inclusion ambassadors who are young people with lived experience of various facets of diversity, very often intersectional. And yeah. the idea is that Inclusive Minds connects them with authors and publishers, ideally at as an early stage as possible in the book development process. And they help them to develop authentic characters and plot lines. And it's very different from a sensitivity check, which tends to happen at the end, which is like, oh, check, there's nothing in here that might cause offence. You know, it's about yeah. actually getting that authenticity from the beginning. And that's the real driver of that. And actually, recently over over the years, having you know done some more work on why I've ended up doing this, actually, as a child, I never felt like I fitted in. And whilst I'm not marginalised in the way that a lot of people are, I do empathise with that sense of 
feeling like I had to change myself to fit into a box of what someone should be like. At primary school, I remember feeling sad one day and my teacher said, saying, actually, it's okay to feel sad, that's fine, and feeling very validated. And that was what led me to be want to be a teacher because I wanted to make other children feel like that. And obviously, I've since realised that actually it wasn't teaching I wanted to do, it was giving that, giving that message to children. And that's very much what underlies my motives now. It's about making sure that everyone can realise that no matter who you are, it's absolutely fine to be that person. You don't have to fit in. And we can only do that by showing through books and media and life. But obviously, some people don't get to experience a diverse range of people in their day-to-day real life. They only see it through books and media. But actually, there are so many different ways of being a person that Mm. whoever you are, it's safe to be yourself. Two years ago, just before the pandemic hit, Alex and I actually handed over Inclusive Minds to three of the inclusion ambassadors who are now the directors. We established it as a, a CIC and they are, well, the handover took longer than planned, but it's pretty much all handed over now because of the pandemic and we've all got yeah. things. Over. So we've got three ambassadors who are you know, people with marginalised lived experience now running Inclusive Minds and Alex and I working as consultants with them, but also on our own, on our own paths as well. And I feel that what I do working with publishers to learn those basic principles is, you know, it's just one part of the puzzle. Yes, they still need to work with people with lived experience. But actually, if you've got those foundations first, those people, you're going to be getting real value from them because they're not going to be telling you the really basic stuff that you could already know. They're going to be, you know, delving in and giving you the real nuances about their experiences Mm. so people can be authentic. So I did tell you it was a long story. Oh, my goodness. I I suppose one of the things that really, well, first of all, I want to say thank you, actually, because um, I don't know if you know, but my dad had cerebral palsy and I've spoken about this on, on the podcast that I observed him not feeling like he belonged And I had my own experiences of not feeling Mm. like I belonged as well. For my dad, the stories that he would tell, and he never saw himself represented. He never saw anyone like him or read any anything about people like him in books and then films and so I think that I really believe that had he had that, his world, his landscape would have looked very different. I think he he could have felt like he had more belief in himself I felt like he could have felt more connected to others and felt like he belonged so it's really this stuff is so so important yeah Um, and probably when your dad was young the books that were available that did feature any children who were wheelchair users there was very much a message that it was because they were negative or bad you know things like the secret garden and Heidi actually when they became friendlier people suddenly they were able to walk again so there's there were a lot of, of problematic course. messages around disabled people and their representation mm. yeah I'd never thought of it like that that good and bad as well mm. um so yeah so so thank you for that the other thing is I spent a lot of time working um, for an organisation that looked at the power of arts and how we can make a difference in the world. How can we build more caring and kinder communities where everyone feels a bit more connected? And we did a whole load of work on empathy and, and reading novels, reading books was a really key part of people being able to step into the shoes of others. Um, and 
hear their stories. We are a storytelling society. Yes. So we have to have this. And my next question is, what's the, ultimately, what's the real change? What's the thing that you would love, love to see change in the world? Oh, I would, the, the real change I'd love to see is that, is one where difference just is. Mm. It's not necessarily celebrated as something, oh, you know, you need, I mean, it is celebrated, but it's not kind of, we don't have to make a big deal of celebrating it. And it's not an issue. It's just a recognition that difference is what makes us human. And difference is what breeds creativity, but also that we're not, none of us are that different, we're the same. It's really hard to to talk about. I mean, you know, I'd like to put myself out of business. I'd like to live (laughs) in a world where I don't need to do this work. I think it will always need to be done because there's always things to learn. But yeah, you know, I don't I don't want to live, you know, a lot of people talk about diversity and inclusion and about how it's going to make people more tolerant. I don't want to live in a tolerant society. Tolerance yeah. is not good enough for me. I don't like the word tolerant. No, I, I, you know, tolerate yeah. is like, oh, I'm putting up with this because I have to. I want yeah. to live in a society that just goes, oh, yeah, this is how it is. And it doesn't matter if you don't understand it. And I think, you know, this is where people go, well, I, oh, I can't understand that, so I can't accept it. It's like... Well, no, you don't have to understand it. You don't have to understand why someone doesn't feel their gender identity matches the one they were assigned at birth. You don't have to un- understand it. You just have to accept that that is their experience and therefore it is valid and this is who they are as a person. I just want a world where that's what we do. We just accept people as individuals. And, and the recognition that actually... You know, this person, okay, yes, they they might be disabled, they might have cerebral palsy, or they might be transgender, but actually there's so many things about them that are the same as you. So what what's the same? And I think that helps with that understanding as well, is actually, well, you're not that different. There's just this bit that is different. Mm. Yeah, yeah, those commonalities are so, Mm. so important to making connection. You, You mentioned earlier that, you know, one of the things you see is people not wanting to make a mistake and I know I I've had that moment where I'm not quite sure of the word to use or you know and I don't want to offend anyone and and then it sort of feels a bit easier to keep quiet and keep it and not to get then involved in the conversation what would you say to people who are afraid of getting it wrong yeah I mean I th- and I think this has got worse with the advent of social media because if you say one thing wrong people will jump on it and you'll get shot down in flames and I especially see it on Twitter which is why I'm not really on there anymore yeah. um, but <laughs> I think if you're unsure it's acknowledging that you know if if people know that you are keen to learn they are willing to help you learn so if you say a word and as if everything and that's definitely right and it's wrong people might you know come back and criticize you but if you say, I'm not sure if this is the right word, but, or I'm not sure if this is the right word, so please correct me if I'm wrong. It's like, you know, when you meet someone, you know, you can ask their pronouns rather than just assuming. And it's just that double checking saying, oh, I, I hope this is right. I've done some reading around this, but I'm not sure if I'm saying this right. So please correct me. And it's showing that you're open to learning. And then people will come back with constructive criticism. I think 
we're very easy to judge and criticise and actually that takes away any learning opportunities and I've seen that happen on social media where someone's criticised and then they get very defensive and so they switch off from learning whereas Mm -hmm. if we can be open and have conversations about it I mean I don't have all the answers I say things wrong sometimes I get things wrong Mm -hmm. things change all the time so it's about trying to keep up to date and listen to people with lived experience as well and and be willing to defer to what to what they say rather than assuming that you're right because that's what you think's right and in books you know this obviously this is where I see it actually it's about again just don't assume do the research try and speak to people with lived experience about how how they see it it's you know by making assumptions that we get things wrong that's my main advice you know if you're not sure ask and and mm. try and learn as much as you can you know this is it's not something you're ever going to have all the answers to it's mm. not something you're ever going to going to completely understand like I said but you can learn as much as you can and yeah. you know what I say when I work with publishers and other people who work in books I say actually working with me you're not going to find all the answers but what you should develop is a an idea of when an answer needs to be found like you'll see something or you'll hear something that makes you go oh I'm not sure about that and it's that instinct that you then go and do the research if you're not sure that's when you check basically you don't just go oh I'm sure it'll be fine or this is what I've seen on telly so it must be right when actually you've only seen limited representations on telly so actually it's probably just another stereotype or yeah yeah that's a really good point if you feel instinctively something's a bit off then go and find out Because sometimes it's easy, isn't it, to gloss over and go, oh, well, you know, my intention's good. So, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. Or I didn't know that. But actually, often when you didn't know, there has been something that's kind of niggled. And yeah, I mean, I end up researching all sorts of weird and wonderful things online when I'm working on books because things have gone, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But also I find talking to people helps. So recently through the work I've been doing, I've actually, you know, established a bigger network of people who've done my training who I can work with and it's really helped me as well to have someone to talk to about things because sometimes I can be looking at something and I'm thinking I can't work out what it is but I know there is something not right here and just being able to talk to someone who can give a different perspective really helps with that so I I think having conversations as well and not being scared to have those I think it's really important within a workplace to create a judgment-free place so that you do feel safe to ask questions and say, I don't know the answer, what do you think? Mm. And again, I think that's harder if you perhaps you are already marginalised in a workplace to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Then uh, how do you... How do you... Or is it your job responsibility to to find ways of then talking about it if you know if you are marginalized and you you are feeling that you don't have any control then it's much harder to then have that conversation with others yeah and I I mean it's there's been various discussions about it recently and I've heard anecdotes there's a lot of drives to diversify the creative industries and there's initiatives like creative access which offer paid internships to marginalized people and I think they are brilliant but actually people who are getting into the industry that way aren't necessarily staying in the industry 
Yeah. And, you know, it's really important that we look at why that is. And is it because they're not feeling safe to talk about things that are important or because there's unconscious bias against them or microaggressions? So I think there's so much around this that makes it really important to talk about inclusion and diversity and not just assume that we're we're doing it right. I really like Nova Reed's comment that the good white liberals are often the people who are you know getting it wrong because they're just assuming yeah. they're getting it right and they mean well and actually there's a lot more learning to do around that and I think you know that's that's where we struggle everyone has got especially if you you're you're in the more privileged in the sense that you don't have you don't have so many barriers against you in terms of you know ethnicity or disability you know we've all got a lot of work to do mm. Mm. Yeah, and I, I'll put a link actually to Nova Reed's books. It's just been released, yes. hasn't it? Um, the Good, a- good Ally? That's yes, right, The Good Ally, it? yeah. I'll put that in the um, show notes because I think that's a really important piece to read. Beth, I want to come to you now. Yes. I want to talk about how you fit into all of this because just just before we came on, you know, we were talking about what we might talk about in this and I, and I talked about the podcast a little bit and why why it's created and I know that you've been working very hard on balance over yes. the last few <laughs> months <laughs> and that sense of how do I do good in the world how do I really make a difference how can my work make a difference but how do I also protect myself can you talk a little bit more about that yeah definitely and I think when Alex and I set up Inclusive Minds in 2013 you know we've we were both running our own freelance businesses and that was what was bringing in the income, but we really wanted to establish Inclusive Minds, but we had no funding for it. So everything we put into Inclusive Minds was in addition to what we needed to earn a living. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of evening work. There was a lot of weekend work. There was a lot, yeah, a lot of time put into various things. And actually before I had a child, I was able to do that and still have time for myself. Alex at the time did have a child and I probably didn't quite appreciate the juggles, you know, a child and a husband. So I probably didn't quite appreciate the juggle that she was managing. Whereas I was like, oh yeah, I can just do that. I can do that in the evening. And then I'll, you know, I'll start work later the next day. Whereas since having my son, it's, it's been a lot harder because if I work in the evenings, I lose the only time I have to myself and I can't work at the weekends because I have my child with me or on the days when he wasn't at nursery or after school now. So I had just been, yeah, burning the candles at both ends and getting everything done. And we did amazing things for that. We we built Inclusive Minds up over six years before we handed it over. And we we ran events and we published, we edited, guest edited an edition of Write for Children journal and... We built this network for inclusion ambassadors. We did so much with absolutely zero funding because funding is really hard to get just for core funding. It has to be yeah. for a particular project. So I think it was it was worthwhile, but I realised that I can't do it because it it impacts my life, it impacts my parenting, and actually it impacts my work. I can't do my work as well if I'm totally exhausted. And I think there's also a story that 
there's not a lot of money within the creative industries and there's not a lot of money in publishing and there's particularly not a lot of money within children's publishing, which, you know, to a certain extent is probably true, but to another extent actually isn't. You know, I think there is money there. It depends how it's prioritised and what people want to spend it on. So I, I had to change... I had to change my way of working. I, I made it a rule that actually I didn't work evenings unless I really had to. And obviously I couldn't work weekends, but yeah, I was kind of working every hour whilst my son was at nursery. And then obviously still checking emails on my phone and replying to emails on my phone when he was around. I think it is when you're, you're doing something you're passionate about, and it was, I was, you know, I feel so passionately about the work that I do you do want to throw everything into it. But I got to the realisation that I was doing all this work to make children feel like they were safe and they belonged and they could be whoever they wanted to be, but to the detriment of my own parenting skills. So actually I wasn't giving my son that, which was a really hard realization you know especially when I wanted him so much I want you know I went I had him on my own because I wanted a child and I hadn't met someone so it was hard and I realized that I had to put some balance in place and there's always the thing that like, oh when when things are calmer I'll give myself time off when I'm earning more money I'll give myself time off and I think we were having these conversations when I first met you about a year ago Sarah <laughs> um <laughs> And then, you know, you get to the point where you realise you've just got to do it. Otherwise, it's never yeah. going to happen. So last November, I decided that I no longer work Fridays. And actually, when I was trying to do it, like, oh, I have one Friday off a month, it just got, it got moved and it got lost. And but actually, that's really made a difference. Fridays is my day off. I mean, it's generally a life admin day. So I'm I tend to still be doing stuff but you know it's like oh I'll clear all the clutter out the house and I'll put some children's drawings in the recycling while they're not around the ones I don't need to keep (laughs) (laughs) the kind of stuff that it's hard to do when a child is around you know I could just but sometimes I'll just go and have a coffee and read my book or like last Friday after doing a birthday party I just watched some telly on Friday it was great with my cup of tea and that has made a real difference because I don't get any t- I don't get any time at the weekends for me. My weekends are me and my son. So having that time for me has has really made a difference, especially after you know, the pandemic and lockdowns when things were very intense with it just being me and my son and I didn't have any adults to chat to and he didn't have any children to play with. So having that space yeah for us both for me to, to reset before the weekend and then have that energy to spend with him has really made a difference I feel like I've gone a bit round in circles then I can't even remember what the original question was <laughs> it, well it was it wasn't really one it was like can you talk about balance but um, um, and you've just you've talked about it really well and I think I I imagine so many people listening here are going to really resonate with that because there is that sense of throwing yourself in because we are good people and we want to do good and often we I see often change makers are perfectionists and people pleasers and yeah um you know we tell ourselves lots of stories about what we should and what we shouldn't do and and I you know thank you so much for sharing that realization that you had about giving all of this stuff to my work to the detriment of 
me, my parenting and my child. And my story is really similar to that. I was being really, really kind to everybody else in the world, literally in the <laughs> <Yep>. world, <laughs> apart from the people that I I was living with. And, and I think kindness can cost us. There's that phrase, kindness costs nothing. But I think actually it can sometimes. It was and I and I hear what you're what you're saying and 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 you've said okay well it can't be like this anymore and so this is what I want my life to look like yeah I mean and I haven't I haven't got it right yet it's it's something that I am working on and I still find it hard and I still think actually you know it would be great to have a break and be able to go off to a spa for a day or something or have a weekend to myself or so that I've got that energy but I th- yeah I think I think we're getting there and I think I'm actually enjoying the time with my son more not all the time yeah. <laughs> six is challenging but um <laughs> you know most of the time we've actually had a really good summer together and I think we're getting we're getting there but I'm sure a lot of people felt this with the pandemic and the lockdowns I felt like it was just it was too much and it was too much time together in intent you know in an intense manner when you know I'm trying to work and not, you know not stress about getting ill and my parents getting ill or him but I think it really impacted our relationship and I really struggled to enjoy time with him mm. for a long time yeah. and it took a while for me to get that back where I wasn't kind of just resentful that oh my god I just need some space I think a lot of people have have mm. felt that I know it's not just me but it's come you know and it came to a head I realized that I was depressed at the end of the year and that I'm I'm on on antidepressants now which are also helping me and I don't I know so many people that are on them and there's so much stigma about it but but actually it was the right thing for me to do and it made a real it made a real difference it made me able to be a lot calmer and again you know, I spoke to the doctor and I was like, oh, I'm not sure about antidepressants. And then me and my son had an argument and I was just thinking, actually, this isn't just about me, it's impacting him. And that's that's not okay. I need to sort this out. So it's about finding, you know, what works for us. And, you know, and I do all the other stuff. I do the journaling and the meditating, but actually it got to a point where that wasn't enough, you know, yeah. after the year that we'd all had. Um, so... Yeah, there's always work to do, and I'm trying to do work with my son as well to help him find a balance in things because it's an important skill as we grow up. I'm only learning these self care skills in my 40s, my late 30s and 40s. I had this like, oh, it's okay to be me. Oh, you know, oh, fitting in isn't the aim. You just have to be who you are. And it's like, okay, this has taken me 40 years to get here. You know, I don't want it to take him that long to realize that you are important and actually yeah. last night I often talk and this just came from working with um Kerry Jarvis who says it's most important to love yourself and teach your kids to love yourself rather than other other people and mm. it was last night I bed to him I said I love you and he said I love you he said but I love me more and I said well that's good it's really important that you love you yeah um and it's quite a hard thing to say because it's used as an insult of oh, that that person loves themselves yeah, but actually, yeah. you've got to love yourself to look after yourself. It's nice to be able to have those conversations with mm. him. Um, yeah, what I really love listening to you, Beth, is 
you recognize that there's more work to be done and you're you know you're still trying to figure it out and of course as the children get older the challenges change and I've really noticed having well I have she calls herself a tween now and that brings like a whole level of (laughs) different hormones yeah oh um yes 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 what i really love is you you noticed you noticed there was something off and you then took control of that and you sought to help if i could change one thing for people in the world is that is that they can see they do have some control it might not always be obvious, mm. but you can you can take control and you can make decisions that even if they're the tiniest little moments that can make your day, your week, your month, your life better. And even when the moments where we've we've tried something and then and then it all it's all gone a bit wrong and you have to get the energy to, to kind of get up and try it again. But that seems to me my perspective of it is that you you noticed and you've you're doing something about it. But to be honest, I mean it took some help to notice that. Mm. So, you know, the things that I, I noticed myself that yes, I needed to work on myself and I needed to do things for myself, but actually realising I was depressed took someone else saying it a number of times to me. In mm. fact, the lovely Ella, who I know is on your podcast and is mm. my accountability partner with work, and I'm so lucky to have her because she, yeah, she challenges me and makes me question myself, and she raised it a couple of times because I don't think I would have admitted it to myself, but she got me thinking. So I think as well it's about listening when other people say, actually, you might need to look at this or you might need to think about this. Um, and it's very easy to go, oh, no, no, I'm I'm fine, I'm fine. But, yeah. Mm, yeah. But then you've put yourself in a position where you have an accountability partner, where you have, especially when you're working on your own, yeah. you know what it's like, like you're, in, you're in the office and you feel like you're going a bit, like brain is about to explode because you're not yeah. <laughs> quite sure what you're doing or... And I'm, yeah. I am, for me, I'm so used to working in the team it's it's been very very strange suddenly just being me on my own and so you know I you know give you also give yourself credit that you were in you put yourself in that position of saying well I I want to have those conversations with someone else get a perspective from somebody else because it is so easy just to keep your head down and and keep working and not you might you know might notice but sort of brush it off brush it off how you're feeling yeah and I think to be honest I think that I've been a detriment with my personal life and my business life it was only a few yeah two years ago when I actually started realizing that I could think of my freelance work as a business and started to get business support and realize you know ways that I can actually make it financially viable rather than just living hand to mouth so yeah I think support systems both personal and professional have made a huge difference to my ability to do good and do well and yeah yeah function yeah. properly as a fully grown adult yeah yeah and now that you've said that i need to ask you the question beth what <laughs> does do good and do well mean to you what 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 does that say to you i think it means and, and from listening to you and knowing you but i think the really simple thing it means that 
you are doing good in the world whilst not losing yourself. Mm. Probably that's not enough for do well, but I think it, I think that's the first step because it's so easy, like we've said, to lose yourself as you're trying to make a change. But yeah, doing good in the world whilst looking after yourself at the same time and doing well in your own life and personal life. What what is the losing yourself bit like? How would you describe that? Um, I mean, I think I, I've I kind of lost myself in two ways. I lost myself in work, and I lost myself in motherhood. And perhaps this is why I thought I would find it really hard to answer your first question about what would you like people to know about you. And I yeah. talked about motherhood, and I talked about work. Yeah. Um, and actually, not a lot about me aside from that and I think that's where you lose yourself you lose yourself like this is your job and you you meet people it's like oh what do you do what's your job and so that becomes a huge part of your identity and then when you become a mother like that totally consumes you and all that any hobby that you might have done before you became a mother is perhaps really hard to keep up again because you've got a baby to look after and you know it's it's hard to find I, don't, I totally forgot what I enjoyed doing, I think, for a long time. I didn't even read for a long time, apart from some parenting books about how to get my child to sleep. Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, I've always been a voracious reader. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's what I mean by losing yourself, getting consumed in your roles and not mm. your being. When you made the decision to have your child, could you see what those challenges might be? Did it... Where, what were you thinking about in terms of work and, and being, um, would you say, how would you describe yourself? Single mum? I don't, solo parent? I tend to use the word solo <laughs> mum because, yeah. I mean, what the, one of the terms that's used for people with who've had donor-conceived children alone tends to be single mother by choice. But the by choice bit doesn't necessarily resonate with me because actually I would have loved to have met someone and done it with them. I mean, there are benefits to doing it alone. So... Mm. It wasn't a choice in that sense, but it was a positive choice for me because I hadn't met someone and I didn't want to miss out. So, it, yeah, it was a it was a positive choice. I mean, I had I had no idea how hard parenting was. Mm, I was a great parent before I was a parent myself. I was one <laughs> I of those was perfect, people. Beth. <laughs> I was one of those people that would kind of go, oh, I would never shout at my child like that. I yeah. was one of those. And me too. I had very, you know, I had ideas about the kind of parent I was going to be. And I didn't realise how little energy I would have to be that parent. So I think I had a very idealistic view of it. I had gone freelance thinking, you know, I do want to be a parent one day. And actually, if I'm freelance, it gives me that flexibility to pick my child up from school and go to nativity place. Not that we had one in my child's first year of school. <laughs> you know, sports days. No, not my. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, th- I had a very idealistic view of what parenthood would be like um and that I'd be able to do some work in the evenings because I wouldn't be tired or nap times um yeah I just I kind of thought it'd be quite easy to work around a child I mean I did know that I would send my child to a childminder and nursery you know I knew that would happen and I wouldn't be a stay-at-home mum I don't yeah I'm not still not keen on that phrase either I think it gives certain judgments doesn't it because it says you're not working it's like yeah you are working so (laughs) yes very hard yeah yeah I just kind of thought it would all it would fit into my life 
<laughs> Little did I know. Yeah. Pre-child, I used to start work at 10 and work till 7. And those are my best working hours. It, yeah. I'm not a morning person, so that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, I just had very idealistic ideas about, yeah, working with my baby in a sling on me. I did go to an event with my baby in a sling on me. That was, I did <laughs> yes. do that once. <laughs> I did a meeting once mm. and she cried the entire time and then I was, I just didn't want to do that ever again. Um, yeah. Beth, we're coming to the end of our conversation. It's been so brilliant. How can people find out more about you and what you're doing and all of that? Yeah. Um, well, I have a website, which is bethcox.co.uk, so nice and easy to remember. I am most active on LinkedIn in terms of social media, so I'm Beth C. Inclusion on LinkedIn, and I'm kind of active on Instagram, and I do have a Facebook page and a Twitter <laughs> account, but I'm not very active there. For the reasons I've already said about Twitter, I think I think the short form of it doesn't work for me. There's not enough nuance in that, so yeah. Yeah. LinkedIn yeah. is the place to be and I have a mailing list which you can sign up to on my website and blog yeah. and all sorts of things so and, and you work with um organizations but you also work with freelancers oh yeah so well. the, the the training program I've developed which is teaching these basic principles of inclusion yes I have a version called foundations for inclusion which is for freelancers in books so authors illustrators editors anyone working freelance within the book industry and it's a combination of training and consultancy so that you can get the knowledge but then the consultancy helps you apply it to the mm. kind of projects you work on because everyone works on very different projects yeah brilliant thank so you good. so oh, much thank you for inviting it's... me on and i'm glad we finally got round to it yeah <laughs> have a really great day and i will speak to you soon take care Beth. thank you Thanks so much to Beth Cox for sharing with us her thoughts and her thinking and her work. Don't forget us on your podcast platform. Please do leave us a review or a star rating or mention us, mention the podcast on your social media. I really do treasure and love any feedback or mentions that we get. You can find me pretty much everywhere on at Sarah Fox Coach. And for more tips, ideas and thoughts and a weekly reminder that you matter too, you can sign up to my newsletter. Take very good good care. care.